Welcome to TechVets, the podcast, a show dedicated to exploring the world of tech and cybersecurity through the eyes of industry leaders and X-Forces personnel. In this show, I'm talking to Rebellion Defence's Alex Burton, a former admiral, and I start by asking him how a degree in chemistry helped when he joined the Royal Navy. Well, I suppose, I mean, I'm, I'm quite old now. When I joined the Navy in 1986 as a graduate, I think there were only about 20% uh, of uh, young naval officers were graduates. So I suppose it was rather unusual then, though not unique. Um, now it's it's pretty standard that, that most people that join from civilian street, we get a lot of um, officers coming through from the ranks or the lower deck as we describe it. But it was it was more unusual to have a degree in those days than it is now. Chemistry degree, you touch on an element of guilt in my as I look through my life because I wanted to join the Navy from sort of, you know, mid teens. I um, was in the cadets, so had the experience of life at sea a little from sailing and a couple of times on a warship. So I was sponsored as a bursar through university, which meant at the end of that that time, I so long as I got a degree, I was able to continue a career. That meant that I didn't commit to my degree as much as in hindsight, I, I wish I had. And I suppose what it did give me, because I'm an eternal optimist in these things, what it did give me was a, a latter day enthusiasm for learning at the various staff courses I went on and, and the various other courses I went on. But I, I did not gain everything out of my academic education at Durham that I, that I should have had, but I had a fabulous time. <laughs> um, is the difference between now and then that, that people enter the Royal Navy slightly older now than they, they did in those days? I mean, 20 years before you, they were entering at the age of 15, weren't they, or 14? Um, gosh, <laughs> not that old. I don't think I'm that old. But I, I, yes, you're right. I think, although we might lag, uh, the military tends to reflect society. And, the, you know, I think we're now at 50 percent um, or close to 50 percent of those people going, leaving school at the age of 18, go on to higher education. So we're, it, it is a reflection of that. It's also a reflection, I think, across all three services of the need for greater grounding in education before before they join and a, and, and a more a more sophisticated thinking. I would say we reflect society in the, the technology that we use, the challenges that we're that we're engaged in benefit from a degree. I mean, it's not necessary. And we've got some absolutely outstanding people that have joined either through the lower deck or, or straight from school. And forgive me, I keep saying we, of course, I'm three years, I'm three years out of date. But, you know, once you've, once you've worn the uniform for so long, you feel a sense of belonging. You can't, you can, you'll never shake being Admiral, I'm afraid, That's a, it's, it's a, which is a wonderful thing. I've got a, a neighbour who um, was in the Royal Navy when they uh, gave up on the tot of grog in the 1970s, which seems to be almost Napoleonic. And his son has just left Sandhurst at the age of 28, which for me seems extremely old. I mean, is that a sort of direction of travel for the whole of the, the, the military? I think I take it more broad than that, which is I think the direction of travel will be and should be a far more fluid movement between the military and the civilian sector. And that might be people joining late with a whole host of skill sets that they've got from a previous career. It might be, and here's a vision and hope that, that others share, people 
dipping out of the services, going into other other career paths and then coming back in again and bringing the richness that they that they gain from the civilian sector. So, you know, I wish your the son of your friend well, and I'd hope that the experiences that he, he's had up until the age of 28 will serve as an additive to his military career when he when he leaves Sandhurst. Well, I think that's the idea, isn't it? So I'm very uh, intrigued by this idea of, of dipping out of the services, going into the private sector. I mean, would that be in kind of specific pathways, specific contracts, certain industries, or or, or would you sort of see a kind of sabbatical system for, for serving personnel? Institutions love processes and structure. And so, you know, your question sort of dips to what the military would like, which is a clear idea of a sabbatical or a you know, a leave of absence. I think the civil service have that at the moment. I'd be far more reactionary, rebellious, perhaps, which is, you know, we're, we're a small enough organisation now that you should treat every individual and instance uh, on it on its merit. So, for instance, we've a, um, a Royal Air Force two star who's joining us on a fellowship for nine months between his two appointments. And, you know, I'm hoping that he will gain a huge amount from uh, his experience there. But equally, I could see a situation where a young software engineer or engineer joined a company like us for two, three years, left the Navy or the Air Force or the Army. Uh, and then after two, three years said, Do you know what, actually, I want to use those skills within the cyber force or or whatever. So went back in again. So I would be I'd avoid being prescriptive on the mechanisms for for movement between those two those two sectors. It, I mean, it will inevitably be called Burton's AWOL scheme, won't it? <laughs> well, no, it won't. I mean, I'm not. You know, look, this is not this is not revolutionary, and 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 it's not and it's not you know not just my idea. I think that um, Mike Winston, the chief of the air staff, when he gave his visionary look at the air force in in 2040, had described this concept. I suppose the only thing that I would say is let's not wait till then. <laughs> you know, I, there's there's an impatience on both sides to to, to make those changes now. So no. Do not credit me with this, but um, I'm all for it. Uh, going back to your own experience in the Royal Navy, and it sounds like the, the, the bits where you went and learnt, where you went and did courses were really important to you. I, I don't know if you know what it's what those courses are like now, but I mean, we're, we're, you're starting in the 1980s and through the 1990s. Did you get a sense that that was becoming more important in the Royal Navy? Were the courses adapting to modern times? Were you learning at the start quite traditional, out-of-date things, really? I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is that what I really energised me about my time in the Royal Navy was the variety. And there was that sort of balance between between lifelong learning and, and personal development and getting on and, and doing stuff. But to go to your question on learning... Learning was very traditional. I think, unfortunately, it remains. I mean, COVID, let's come back to how COVID has probably acted as a forcing function for change. But were it not for COVID, so looking back 18 months ago, the manner of learning remains frustratingly traditional. Um, and let's hope that COVID is, act, as I've said, acting as a forcing function function for change there. I think what is being learned is is developing all the time. And there are some, you know, there are some really great people within the Defence Academy, within the single service training institutions that are driving, driving the what. If I had a frustration, it would be, and I wrote about it recently with the Tony Blair Institute. It's quite extraordinary that I think, you know, 20% of our military cohort 
are in training at any one time. That is for the nation a tragically high number in terms of efficiency. 20% is a high number in terms of efficiency. I mean, uh, surely training, I mean, given that they are not doing the the kind of last resort thing they're supposed to be doing isn't isn't too terrible is it isn't it a- no well i think it depends on what you call what, what what you describe as training if it's a you know a collection of warships or a battle group on canada kenya or or salisbury plain then then no i agree i mean i need to come back to you with the with the exact percentage i, I think the reality is it's a large double digit number in a classroom and you know that that has got to be that has got to be wrong. So you know, far more. I think there should be far more distant learning. There should be far more simulation. There should be that. After all, is the is the environment that the youngsters of today are growing up in. There's a big exercise off Scotland at the moment, isn't it? Is that the kind of training you'd prefer to see? My my worry about a big exercise off of Scotland or a big exercise in Canada or Kenya is it has its place because you feel the wasset of the environment, but it falls short in several areas uh, in that um, it probably, well, I know, it does not test against the in- environment that we will be fighting when we're taking on a peer adversary because you are stuck within the confines of the Sea of Hebrides or out into you know elements of, of the North Atlantic. You are not, and, and, and nor are the capabilities that are, trained against you in that environment, the true capabilities that you will be put up against. So it falls short in some ways in in measuring the adversity. But I think there is another point as well, which is with live training, you're unable to halt, look at where how things went, retrain so that you get continuous improvement, and you're unable to experiment quite as effectively as you would in a synthetic environment. So I would like to see, and we talked about, there are two parts of training here. We talked about the classroom training, which needs to change. But I will also suggest that the that the sort of the group training uh, needs to shift its balance into the virtual world as well, because of all the benefits that can come from that. That's not to say the live environment um, should be excluded, but the balance is too heavily weighted towards the live environment at the moment. Okay, so you're in a lift with the Secretary of State for Defence, and and you've you've just got a, a couple of floors to say, pragmatically speaking, how would you roll out a new program of education for the armed forces? What what would you do? I'd split it in two. I'd say individual training uh, needs to be far more engaging. It needs to be distant and needs to be connected to the equipment and the systems that they're using and moved out of the classroom and you know take advantage of all of the technology that is available at the moment to for augmented reality etc etc and they're stepping towards that but that needs to be accelerated and then i would look at the you know what i would describe as the tactical and operational training and i would say that for so many reasons that the balance of tactical and operational training needs to shift into the synthetic environment because you get a more testing and more credible environment um, against your peer adversaries. You get the ability to retrain and learn and learn from your mistakes and get debriefs. You get the ability to experiment 
And you probably protect your assets, those live assets, more by not throwing them around in, in substandard training environments. Lovely. Ping. You're at floor 15. You've done it. I think, I think that's, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Your own background, I mean, chemistry was a, a degree, but did the Royal Navy pick that up at any stage and say, you know, you should be on a chemistry course, you should be doing something chemical, or, or were you allowed to forge your own path? I certainly wasn't allowed to forge my own path. I mean, I was I was guided and had a collection of mentors and, and people who told me where to go on occasions. I, I, interestingly, I think one of the people that I did a degree with um, was in, I was up in the northeast of England, one was in Wales, and he did a... Um, he did a mining degree. Um, I, I think that was even less relevant to the Royal Navy than a um, than a chemistry degree. But it, but it brings me to the point, and I think this is where we're you know we're, we're enriched by the large number of graduates, which is that what what a degree gives you is a you know an inquisitive mind, um, a disciplined mind, and a, a one would hope a lifelong thirst for for knowledge. Um, and and I think that's what I what I got in part because I didn't exploit the opportunities as I should have done. But that's what I got from my degree. Good. Okay. I want to go on to your recent work for Rebellion and uh, Tony Blair Institute. But let's cover the the end of your career with the Royal Navy, where there were cuts mooted. You were named in an article as you were about to resign because of the cuts. Was this politics? Did you get caught up in the politics of the situation? No, I never felt forced to resign by being pushed by my my leaders. It was a personal choice, and it was a personal choice that had a whole host of of contexts uh, playing into it. One of which was a desire, you know, in a rather trite manner, to spend more time with my family, but in a very true sense. Uh, one of which was a desire to to try something very different. And of course, there were, you know, there were. A, a variety of, of other things within my current career that also made me think, you know what, it's it's time to, to move on and, and time to move on with a huge gratitude for the enormous amount that the Navy had uh, had given me and offered me. Was any part of it the kind of horrifying media pressure that comes with the job of Admiral? I mean, you were picked up uh, sh- shortly before that in a Richard Littlejohn column, weren't you, for uh, being pro-LGBTQ, which he, he doesn't like at all? Um, that's a really good question, which I suppose I can answer in two parts. I There was no way that that, that criticism was a catalyst for me leaving the Navy. I mean, to some extent, I was... I mean, proud is the wrong word, but I have no regrets for for the manner. Uh, I mean, I do remember waking up in the morning, perhaps naively, um, but somewhat shocked both at the you know, at, at the article. I then I, I, I had overwhelming notes of you know sympathy, which I didn't need, and support, which was hugely helpful. Well, a, a, an old university friend of mine was running a PR sort of polling organization and said, look, the least I can do is help to see how your brand and for want of a better word, your brand and reputation has been affected. And he phoned me back, having sent me a, a bit of data three days later and said, you got a polling rate that Kim Jong-un would be proud of, you know, <laughs> in terms of in, in terms of um, in terms of has it done you any damage? But the answer is no. All of us make decisions and sometimes we think we made them in haste and, and regret them. And sometimes we think we make them in haste and 
we don't regret them. And I think on that one, uh, I made it in haste. And, you know, I recognize that that's part of my personality, which I need to temper. But it's one of those ones that I have no regret on. I've got a Royal Navy friend who was rather cruelly describing a, a first sea lord as, a, as an absolutely excellent person to have alongside you if you're fighting a war, but don't stand between him and a broadcast interview uh, or you'll get run over. It, it sounds like you weren't very, um, not media savvy, that's the wrong word. You, you didn't court the media, did you? Well, I, I gosh, I, that must be for others to form a view on because I think that courting the media is one of what others perceive you to do. I would say that, and things have changed significantly, I would say that I had a frustration that Defence's approach to the media was, and it is less so now, but this is, we're talking three to six years ago, was one of defensive circle the wagons. And I always thought that was the wrong approach to make. And it was far better to have a an engaged approach with the media and have a conversation. Now, there are clearly areas that are off bounds and, and you know, that, that is quite right. Good. Now, since you have left, um, can you describe your, your, your career? What, what have you done? Yeah, a, a lot of fun. And I think, I think that that should be how everyone, you know, looks back and looks forward at any career. It should be something that provides energy for you rather than makes your heart sink when you either go to your desk in your study or, or catch the bus into work. I mean, actually, going to your point of why I left the Navy, I left the Navy because I was seduced out of the Navy. I, a, a good friend of mine who I've known since I was six months old was worked for uh, Deloitte and did some pro bono work for small startup companies with a purpose. And I was talking to him about you know, that at some stage over the next few years, I, I would leave and what were his thoughts? And he threw me a business pack for this young company and said, look, these, this is a really exciting uh, organization. They've just started up. They're delivering some extraordinary stuff in Africa. I'm interested in it because my wife's Tanzanian and, and his, and, and, and this was my, my friend and they're doing delivering water in Africa. Uh, they probably need someone with a little bit of military discipline and structure around them. Uh, would you like me to introduce you? Uh, and he did. And, and within literally having been introduced to them in September, I had left my job in the Navy two months later and was uh, and was supporting them. So if you wind back to your earlier question, why did you leave? I was pulled to a, a really exciting young company that was doing some exceptional stuff. And to pick up what you were saying about um, making your career work for you, perhaps not, which, you know, which means not looking for the money all the time. If you're a serving military personnel who is looking at tech vets to find a job in tech, that would be your advice to them. Is don't, don't think to yourself, this is all about salary. Don't think this is all about being you know, crowned into a box and made to do something for the rest of your life. Make sure that what you're doing is is good for you yes I, I i in some ways um as an admiral you're you're very lucky in that you've got a whole host of connections you've got a, a household name in some some sectors and and the other key thing is you do have 
the safety net of a pension. So, you know, I don't take any of that. In other ways, it's a real burden because people expect you to demand a staff car, a, a, a collection of outer office office individuals and, and pampering. I mean, absolutely not with this fabulous little company. I mean, you know, I, I, I remember going out to Malaysia, I think it was just before I left the Navy representing the first Sea Lord and was unbelievably well looked after because of who I was representing from the moment I sort of left the aircraft um, to the moment I was returned to the aircraft. And, and it was quite fabulous. I then my next flight was out to Tanzania with this small company. We were taking in, I think, the first 40 of these products that we were putting into villages. I you know, flew into uh, the middle of the night, gone in some sort of overcrowded taxi to go and stay in a sort of shared room in a hostel. Uh, and within two nights, I was literally sleeping in a mud hut, um, you know, five hours from the three, four hours from the from the nearest road. And and that was the world of the 18 months. So you, you've got to leave all, all of the, the accoutrements of power behind you and be prepared to learn again um, and, and have the humility. You don't travel everywhere by frigate then. That's, that's good to hear. Um, <laughs> let's, go, let's go to the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change because uh, uh, you know, that is a, as branded a position, I suppose, as, as the word admiral, isn't it? I mean, people have an expectation of what that means. What, what do you do for them and how does it being the Tony Blair Institute help? I mean, I, I wouldn't overstate what I do with them um, to start with. But, but the Teddy Blair Institute for Global Change has a fellowship that it set up last year under the banner of technology and, and public policy. And I mean, I think it was uh, why was I interested in it? Because I just saw it of its time. So this was set up before COVID. And I think that, you know, if COVID has, has taught us anything, it is that it is that technology is going to be, you know, the critical path of, and science is going to be the critical path of our future. But it was set up before then to get a group of people to think about how technology can facilitate um, public policy and public change. And interestingly, when I joined in the autumn, um, my the piece of work, and I was asked, you know, we as fellows were asked to do a couple of articles uh, uh, over a year. Um, and the question that I pose, which I still have in my mind unanswered, is how, as increasingly we use artificial intelligence, as increasingly we use data to support our decision making, how do we enable the strategic thinkers, the policy makers to use data? Because the alternative is that those strategic leaders and policy makers use data that is for tactical decision making and time bound decision making. And they don't become the strategic leaders and the policy drivers that we would want. So my worry was that um, in that sort of rather, if, if I could sort of use a rather trite metaphor, the sort of film, the eye in the sky, where where you've got all the strategic deciders sitting around a, a full motion video feed um, tracking someone. Um, the risk is that we that the same thing happens with data. You have our strategic thinkers and our politicians focused on what might happen over the next year or so, because that's what they can measure and lose the ability for vision and distance. So that's what I was going to write on. And as we moved into COVID, 
the fellowship looked quite rightly at how elements of technology with COVID. And, and I sort of jumped ship a little because I, you know, that wasn't within my, within my skill set and said I would offer some support on how the Ministry of Defence, as it looked, and government, as it looked to the integrated review, should deliver technology on the back of that review. So I tried not to offer pointers on too much as to as to what they should change, but preferred to focus on on okay, once they've decided how ambitious should they be, uh, how could the government um drive that ambition? That's a very interesting, complicated technical answer. Um and a couple of things kind of spring out of it for me. Um, and perhaps it'd be useful to use Eye in the Sky as an example, because it means you won't be criticising anybody in government. But you know, there is a situation, for those who don't know the film, uh, they want to launch a, a drone strike, uh, and they have all the evidence, don't they? They have all the all the intelligence is coming in through video feeds. Uh, is it Helen Mirren who's the, the, the lead actress? That's it, yeah. She's, she's, she's terribly good. Um, but, uh, but of course, the piece of evidence they don't have is the one about human compassion. So, you know, do they kill the terrorist and the child or what do they do? It's, 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 a, it's a very difficult situation. It's a, almost a sort of King Solomon's choice, isn't it? Um, I mean, would you say in that situation, and people may extrapolate from that, you are criticising government as well, that that the MOD, uh, sorry, that the uh, people in that film are not making uh, evidence-based decisions, or they could be making more evidence-based decisions? Is is that the, the thrust of what you're saying? No, I don't think I am. And, and perhaps I explained myself poorly. I think that with this complex and data-rich world that we're that we're living in, the risk is not that the wrong decisions of the moment are made, because I'm relatively confident that that those at the tactical lead and at the operational lead will have information. I and mean, we can come back to that because I, I have some worries there, but that's a separate point. My worry is that those with custody of our strategic direction get drawn into that which can be measured and therefore, there's a vacuum in strategic understanding and strategic thinking. It's not that they make that the wrong decision is made in that instance to pick your eye in the sky. It is that actually that might be the right decision. But there's been so much fixation on that data and on that information that we that, that it, it distracts us from properly as a country and as a department thinking strategically. Are you saying, like Geoffrey Palmer in James Bond, playing the wonderful admiral who opens fire on the baddie from the ship, let's do this the old-fashioned way? Is, is that is that what you mean? No, we're, we're stretching our cinematic We, we, we are a bit, here. yes. Um, I, so quite the opposite. I think that that we we just... My, my, the, the, your question comes because I explained what I wanted to do with the, with the Tony Blair Institute, which was... I strategic leaders need the tools to think strategically. And in my mind at the moment, the the vast majority of of data tools are looking to support the tactical and the operational um, level of command. And the risk is that those strategic leaders dip down into there, which is fine on occasions, but mustn't be at the expense of proper strategic thinking. 
Now, I'll caveat that by saying that actually, if you look at the integrated review and its conclusion, it was a proper strategic paper. I mean, I've got my views of how ambitious it was, and I think it should have been, you know, I think it's still a very traditional uh, review with lots of shipbuilding and, and metal bending, um, but it was strategic. So, so you know, that's the that's the exception that proves my big pie. <laughs> so that's that's an example which where it works. Um, and just for the benefit of people who don't know, just tell me what the integrated review is. Well, so the integrated review was a once every I think it's once every Parliament strategic assessment of where this country should be looking. Um, and it started, you know, these things started as defence reviews and are now looking quite rightly far more broadly across our foreign policy, security and defence and development structure. And it was, you know, the financial settlement was published in the last part of last year and the, the review itself was published early earlier this year with a defence command paper which sets out um, how it will be delivered shortly after that that review. And broadly speaking, what does it what does it recommend this time? That's that's unusual. Well, I think for our listeners, the majority of whom won't have had the military career in the sort of latter part of the last century that I've got, what I would say they would see as unusual is it's moving from um, counterterrorism, counter extremism as the major threat to a return to great power competition. Um, within that, it rightly acknowledges Russia as that pacing threat. But for the first time, it sees China as a, a, a competitive adversary. So in strategic terms, that's what I would say to, to, to your listeners are is, is probably the most unusual element. It, it's set up for the first time in a long time. It says more ships, doesn't it? Yes. And, and yeah, yes. And and that's where I say it's an ex-admiral. Of course, I'd love to see more ships. But but that's where I'd say it was less ambitious because I really think that there should have been a greater pivot towards um, the technology that will really sustain or allow us to regain our edge against our peer adversaries. Um, so the digitization space, cyber cyberspace, rather than bending more metal, to, to use the vernacular. OK, in a minute, I'm going to talk to TechVet's uh, Chief Executive, James Murphy, about what you've been talking about. So we'll come back to technology uh, at the end of this chat. But uh, I just want to pick up the really the, the last bit, which is your work for Rebellion Defence. Well, what's that? So Rebellion Defence was set up by three visionary individuals on both sides of the Atlantic. We're a we're a US UK company, so we develop software, um, AI, ML software on both sides of the Atlantic. We've got our headquarters, UK headquarters in London, um, our, our US headquarters in Washington. It was set up in July 19, in part because um, the Department of Defense and vicariously the Ministry of Defense got scared when a program called the Jedi program in America, uh, which was um, a Google program, stopped because the Google employees wrote an open letter saying this doesn't align with our principles. And both departments realized that if they were to maintain an edge against and deter adversaries, they needed cutting edge technology that could only come 
from the brilliant technologists that you get in the Googles and the Twitters and the, and the Apples of this world. And if they couldn't be guaranteed and assured, then someone else needed to step into the van. So we've stepped up and we've been going for coming up for two years to deliver world beating software to the US and the UK. And we draw in engineers from some of those globally iconic software houses. Our head of engineering uh, in the UK, who is joining us in a month, is currently head of engineering for WhatsApp in the UK. Our head of engineering in the US put Netflix on the cloud. Uh, our other One of our other engineers was one of the first 10 engineers in Amazon, then one of the first 10 engineers in LinkedIn and Twitter. So, so we've got engineers that have got the authority. They know how to grow a software company from a garage to a global name. Uh, it sounds disruptive, the, the name Rebellion Defence. I mean, is it, is it consciously trying to adapt to or adopt part of the, the internet media mainstream because you have a problem in some ways that, you know, a lot of Google staff say they don't want to do this kind of work. You, you I guess, have found the ones who do. I mean, the name is catchy and everyone remembers it. So, you know, first thing, that's great. Secondly, whilst we, we believe that things need to change within defence, particularly with software, and therefore, you know, when people ask us what, what our rebellion's about, it is, it is that defence, and all of your listeners will recognise this, defence deserves better software than a software that was designed 30 years ago, delivered 20 years ago and unchanged. So just let me give you an example there was a huge announcement. There was an announcement two days ago that the Joint Personnel Administration software that manages all of our, you know, sailors, soldiers, and and, and aviators um, reports has now got a spell check in it. You know, as of this week. I mean, you know, that that that's fundamentally. So, and and if that's the case for our administrative software, then we have certainly got not got the evergreen. So, so you know, we are. Not rebelling, but we are wanting to see, we are demanding change and we are demanding to support that change. I think the other the element of rebellion that we, that we have, particularly within the software industry, is that we absolutely have at our heart the belief that defense should have open architecture, uh, open APIs, uh, and an ecosystem where those on both sides of the Atlantic get to exploit software from a broad collection of, of, of software developers and software companies, some of whom will be the big primes, many of whom will be far smaller, because otherwise um, we will not be able to exploit data at the pace that we want to. So there is a sort of an inclusivity about that rebellion um, that might might be lost. You know, we're not after one ring to rule them all. We are after a change that enables the warfighters who are listening to this podcast now to get the best software and exploit the depth and breadth of data that they're currently unable to do. Okay, to ask, uh, not to ask you to be immodest, but um, it's there's something about what you've just said about the disruptive nature of of. Re- rebellion that's not disruptive that is you know that is trying to get to a better end but is unafraid to say this is wrong and that is wrong 
that also seems to be a kind of marker for your own career throughout, especially in latter years, uh, but really since the 1986 when you, you joined the Royal Navy. Is that is that what you would like to be seen as? Is that, is, that, is that I'm trying to find a way of asking you who are British to say yes I'm really good but I, don't, I know you don't want to say that <laughs> yeah because yeah, it's not true I mean look we, we all of us have uh, flaws and strengths and and quite frequently you know your flaw can subsequently be seen as a, as a strength so if we go back to the you know the unpleasantness surrounding the tweet and the subsequent article by Richard Richard Little, John, you know, many would say that that came from a flaw that Burton has, which is he's impetuous and, and impulsive. You know, I, as I said right from the start, I'm unashamed of, of, of that. I, I think you I think I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to respond to your question of how good are you, Alex, because that's for others to judge. But I do think that there's that, that what you draw out for your listeners is a really important point, which is we all come, if, if I'm, if I'm, you know, if the, the listeners are, are military people, we all grow up in an institution and we're all formed by that institution and, and we are extraordinarily proud of it and are very grateful for it. But we are individuals and the strength that we offer on the outside when you go into that second career uh, is as much your own character as it is the values you gain from the institution that, that you've come from. So to answer your question, I, I have always tried to be true to what my beliefs are, which is an inclusivity and treating people as individuals and shouting out when things are wrong, but trying to work with people to right those wrongs rather than just rile against them. Alex Burton, thank you very much. Great, James. Um, he covered a great deal of ground there. Um, and I think the first thing to establish is what does Tech Vets do with Rebellion? Do, 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 you, do you work with them at all? Uh, we don't work with them, but Alex is a big fan. So, um, you know, he's, he's been a fantastic support. So he's always willing to, to help out and support where he can. So, for example, um, we, we had... Um, a really good planning session that we had booked and I couldn't I couldn't land an office space in uh, Mount Borough House at RFEA um, so you know clearly I then go to my black book with a number of people that that have offered support and um, and Alex was front and center and straight away got back to me and said look come and come and jump into one of our offices and it was fantastic and it's literally you walk out their front door um, cross the road if you walk in a straight line across the road you you walk into the wall two meters to the left of um, MOD main building which was um, fantastic I mean, he comes from a very different time, but he is, of, of course, modern in his, his outlook. How would you compare those two things? I, I mean, I think at the moment we're, we're seeing far more people coming through uh, the military and out the other side who are increasingly modern in their approach. They, they understand the importance of technology and they understand the importance of data and the use of data and having digital skills. Um, again, there's a lot of people that are starting to understand the importance of increased technology, uh, the, the, the efficiency that it brings, and the capability development that could be implemented uh, within their roles when they're leaving the military. And some, yes, uh, they, they also see a frustration. Um, but to be honest, I think that the, the key point that Alex made there, which was actually um, you know, certainly relevant for me, but many others, is that, yes, you're absolutely forged um, within that institution. 
and what that brings you as a sort of core development um, of your sort of soft skills and character traits tends to be those really sort of employable features uh, when you leave. But actually what really helps is that individuality, that character that you have, that you develop yourself over those years um, that can't be uh, directed by the military. That's something that's far more personal. Yeah, there was something quite um, kind of energetic about him all the way through. You know, he's, he's always slightly on the edge of his seat and telling you stuff. Is that is it that kind of attitude that you want to see that you would like to see in people going through tech vets? Because I mean, you know, as as a civilian, I, I interview people who are arms folded, you know, hunched in their seats, not interviewing terribly well. Um, it seemed to me Alex was the opposite of that. Yeah, absolutely. And what you tend to find is that employers are really enjoying the fact that you've got military people leaving who are so passionate, so driven and so excited about the next challenge. And they see a challenge as exactly that. And I suppose the one point that Alex made with it within that regard as well was that he is ever the optimist. Um, and again, uh, it's seeing these people that's, you know, that are leaving the military, especially with something like COVID, you know, especially as, as, as a changing way of working. Actually, we're seeing a lot of people coming through tech vets, you know, landing roles. They've never met their team, but they take it in their stride and they see it as something else that they need to get through. Uh, and that positive approach is something that helps you throughout your whole military career, especially when you're on arduous operations, you know, where, where lives are in danger, you know, where you're not seeing your families for long periods of time. And you have to see the positives through that uh, for your own mental health, I suppose, um, beyond anything else. Just one more question about Alex's character. So he seems to me to be the opposite of um, the kind of fusty Sir Joseph Porter KCB from Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore, you know, who who gets the job because uh, he started at WH Smith. You know, he's 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 not that kind of admiral by any means. I didn't ask him the question. He might have said that there was still a place for that kind of person. Is there your end when you're putting people into jobs? Is there a place for somebody with very traditional ideas? Do they? How disruptive do they have to be to work in tech? How how kind of obviously, consciously unmainstream in a way do they have to be? There are still roles in certainly those those organisations that are, you know, that those individuals going to organisations, turning around and working with defence. And sometimes there is definitely a place for them with those more traditional, um, you know, traits. I would argue, though, that actually that's not a positive. And what Alex displays, his, his exceptional uh, experience that he has, was also the fantastic ability to modernise relevant to, to what was happening around him and what was potentially coming ahead as well. And his, his discussion about looking forward and having that strategic vision beyond the operational and tactical is something that is so important. But actually what you're seeing is that is happening. You know, Sandhurst is a particularly great um, institution for, for training training officers. Uh, and, and the officers that we're getting now are, are particularly um, forward-thinking, dynamic individuals who are leading in the right way. Uh, you don't have the traditional leadership methodologies being implemented at the operational level. And strategically, people are starting to engage a little bit more in, in modern. I suppose we can use our own organization because as a program within RFEA, you know, I'm I'm working on a daily basis with with Alastair Halliday, who, who's you know an X1 star, who's doing phenomenal things um, and quite dynamic in a charity where everyone can work remotely. They're digitised, you know, their their use of data is exceptional, and this is because we've got someone who has that military mindset, but is really focused on how to how to evolve and how to develop. What about the idea we talked about of 
taking time off from your service career in order to go into the private sector and then coming back to your service career afterwards? Phenomenal. Uh, and that's something that I'm, I'm really, really um, pleased that he, he spoke about and, and we're quite aligned on that. Let's, let's make a comparison here with, with non-military careers and, and military careers. In the military, you join the military and, you know, it, it's, yes, it's an institution, but you're working in essence in one company. And whilst you may have a, a real variation in what you do, it's all towards one, one mission. People in non-military roles will move around a lot more. And even if it's in a, 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 the same sort of vertical career path, they're moving from company to company to achieve that. And the difference there is that you're getting more diversity of, of experience. I think what would be really great is for military to really be able to bring that sort of capability back into the fold by getting people out the door, seeing what's working. And what you'll also see, though, is a benefit for businesses who are bringing these individuals into their teams. They will see the, the, the bonus of having these people with exceptional leadership skills, teamwork, you know, motivation, drive, um, and, and as well as uh, all the other procedural stuff. So a really, really strong point. I mean, it's, it's speculation, but is there a role for tech vets in, in this kind of uh, move from government job to private job to government job again? Uh, yes. Um, and actually, away from MOD and in, and in wider government, actually, quite often you see civil service members who, who start in the civil service. Uh, they, they do some fantastic work, but then they move on. And then once they've gained a bit more experience, they come back into a more senior role within the civil servants and the service. And that gives, um, again, a great flavour uh, of diverse experience. I think, yes, TechVets has a really strong role to play um, because we enable people to network deep into, into industries, all sectors where tech and cyber is involved. Um, so people can make those moves as long as there is the, the facility uh, and capacity in place for the MOD to support that. If you're a, a serving personnel listening to this, thinking about how TechVets might be able to help me what what's your what would you take away from the the chat we had with Alex? Uh, what 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 kind of overall is is the advice you take from that uh, discussion that will help you get your job in the future? And don't say start by being an admiral. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I think the point that he made on that is probably the most important. That it doesn't really matter where you come from. When you leave the military, if you're making a career change, you have to be prepared to go back to being a learner. Um, and I think this is a point that I make so many times when people, yes, that imposter syndrome exists, but people use that term sometimes a bit too freely. And when they're leaving the military and moving into quite a different career path, they have to give themselves time to really start learning again. After a few years of learning you know, what best practice is, they will become the practitioners that are delivering best, best practice. And again, after a few more years after that, however many years it takes, they then become the experts who are helping industry shape best practice. But there has to be an understanding and a patience, a level of patience involved there. But again, the other point he made, you've got to be tenacious. You've got to go after it. Um, don't worry too much about the salary. That, that will work its way, um, work its way through, through eventually. But again, strong military background. Use your character traits that you have that are personable, uh, and really drive for what you want um, in order to succeed, but really understand the benefits in the future of technology uh, and how a career in technology and cyber is is a really sustainable and thoroughly enjoyable one. He set great store uh, by the training he received whilst in the Royal Navy. Uh, I mean, is would you say that's, that is important to put across to people, get every available training you can? Oh, 100%. And um, 
I think there is some fantastic resources available now for, for serving persons um, for cybersecurity and, and technology training, distance learning that's available. Uh, they have to apply for it, um, but it is there. And, and that is an appreciation now that's starting to manifest, which is quite nice to see. But yes, you're getting more training, but more personal development than anyone else outside of the military. And the real strong aspect of this is that nearly all the training that the MOD provides at the individual level is developing the core soft skills that are going to be invaluable for them when they leave. You know, the, the values and standards, the ability to be dynamic, to, to you know, be composed uh, under pressure in the face of, of quite rapid change um, and being a robust individual who can also employ critical thought uh, and really problem solving um, uh, elements to, to what are increasingly complex times in cybersecurity. Thank you, James. And thanks also to Alex Burton. There's some really great anecdotes and, and insights uh, during this chat. I think for me, what stands out is the importance of being yourself uh, when you are looking for a job outside the military and being strong, being outgoing as well. Uh, and no doubt, Alex and James's advice will resonate with our listeners. For our listeners, you can find out more about TechVets and how to become a member by visiting techvets.co or searching for TechVets on LinkedIn. If you are a business owner or work for a company in the tech industry and want to find out how to get more veterans into your team, drop James Murphy a message via LinkedIn. You'll find all the contacts you need in the description for this post. We'll be back next month with another TechVets podcast. Thanks for joining us. 